So, if it's okay with you, can you introduce yourself? Yes, definitely. Um, so we are a family-owned and women-owned uh, multilingual team um, comprising of mother and daughter who own a brick-and-mortar business. Uh, we also offer virtual services as well throughout the state of California. Um, our business name is Sunflower Therapies, and we're located in Rancho Cucamonga, which is in the Inland Empire. Um, and we offer services such as speech and language assessment and speech and language treatment therapy. Um, therapy. We also offer marriage and family therapy, um, which includes helping. Um, I specialize in teenagers, young adults, children. And the reason why we, um, so I'm Dr. Starr, and I'm Hi. joined by my business partner and mother, Dr. Langdon. And um, we, the reason why we wanted to start a business like this, actually, we're coming up on our five-year anniversary of Sunflower yeah. Therapies. We were established in 2015, and the reason for that is, um, and, you know, we also see families in here. We see um, couple, I see couples for uh, couples therapy. Um, and so we're able to offer these services because we were seeing a lot of families and children who might both have um, emotional issues as well as communication yeah. issues. When uh, this is Dr. Henriette Langdon and uh Oftentimes, when you may not be able to communicate well enough, um, you, <clears throat> you experience some emotional difficulties. So they actually, our fields do overlap a lot. And so when we were working at different places, we realized that there was a need for um, these kind of services where, we, you know, we can have two professionals under one roof, one team, and consulting um, together to help, you know, families and children and the community thrive. So our motto is growth, health, and hope. And um, my partner has how many years of experience in the 45 field? years. Only 45 years. And yeah. <laughs> I've been licensed as a marriage and family therapist um, since 2012. Both of us have taught at many different universities in different classes. Um, I even taught once in the Communication Sciences and Disorders program. I've lectured in there. We offer workshops. We offer um, professional development, you know, um, help for organizations who may need additional assistance in perhaps understanding how to take care of themselves. We traveled all over California doing these kind of workshops. We can do them online. So, we have a lot to offer, and we're so happy that you asked us to be on with you today. Thank you very much. And uh, I can do uh, render my services in Spanish and in French. We both can. And occasionally, <laughs> I've had requests to do assessments on Polish-speaking children because um, my first languages were Polish and Spanish. But yeah, thank That's, you for having us. Thank you very much. Um, it makes me so happy to see 
to to see when women succeed it I'm a huge fan and I'm really into women's rights and advocating for women and it makes me so happy to see both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess my first question is directed at Dr. Um, Lafton. Um, how would you describe what a speech and language pathologist is, and why did you choose this particular career it's path? An and the the name sounds a little bit um, overwhelming because of the word pathology, and basically what happens, what we do uh, as specialists in this field is that we may work with um, human beings from the time they are born until 90 plus, and we look into communication and. Within communication, you have the aspect of comprehending language and also expressing yourself. So the reason I um, got into this field is because I've always loved languages. Uh, I had a master's degree in teaching uh, languages, and I couldn't understand why the students that I was teaching who had cerebral palsy and therefore a lot of motor problems were able to, um, to learn the language, to comprehend the new language and be able to express it even though they had these motor difficulties where they couldn't pronounce the sounds very well, they still could learn another language. So therefore I pursued a doctorate in um, special education with ramifications into speech and language and what they call the psycholinguistics. So your question is very good. Many people don't know what we do, even though we have an association in Washington, D.C. called the American Speech Language Hearing Association that has, that has uh, 200,000 members. There are still people walking on the street not knowing exactly what we do. However, in the I just saw an article in Entrepreneur Magazine that talked about the best careers for the future, and speech and language pathology made it onto that list. There were only 25 professions, and it's supposed to be very much, it's going to be in demand even more so, you know, along with all healthcare fields, but it's definitely one that's growing and needed. And it's impossible to be a... Um, know every aspect of the field. I have, um, you know, like in any field, I have concentrated on the, the uh, pediatric, which is like from one year up to 18, 19. There are others, I work in a school setting, but there are others who work in a rehabilitation. But let's face it, my mom really likes to play with 
different toys. We like to do that. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> we um, have a whole playroom here, and it's full of books and toys and stuffed animals, and so we really and games. We try to cater to our population and keep them entertained and focused. So. Yeah, because you, as you know, the earlier you intervene, the better. If you identify that the child is not developing very well in whatever area of development, if you do something about it early, then it's much easier to intervene and solve the problem because after that, there are all of these emotional, even more emotional difficulties and many times learning difficulties because language embraces all these areas which are not only communication, but learning and your emotional well And you know, being able to express it to others. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, would you say that there are any similarities between muscular dystrophy and um, what's that? What is that other physical disability that's that's um cerebral palsy? Yes, cerebral. Yeah, it depends because um cerebral palsy can come in into different you know, no two children who have the same diagnosis have the same strengths and uh challenges. There are children with cerebral palsy who are wheelchair bound and there are and can hardly um, talk or even swallow. There are other kids who can walk, but in a very awkward way. Uh, so there are different ways in which it can be manifested the same way as when we speak about a child with um, autism. Uh, each child is different, uh, depends on how it affects the person. So. A diagnosis is not necessarily uh, similar to the description of the person's ability. And that's what we look at in our clinic, is that in our private, private practice. practice, is we look at strengths and not, we, we take into account the weaknesses or challenges, I like to call them. But we try to address what the child brings, because each child can make progress. I, I believe in that. So, in your expertise, you would say that there are um, few, if not, if any, um, similarities between muscular dystrophy and cerebral palsy? Um, I couldn't address that very well, but I do have, I did have students who had muscular dystrophy. It manifests itself in a different way. Sometimes it's more in the gross muscles rather than the speech muscles, which are, you know, um, more finer motor. So it depends. Um, I couldn't answer that question right now. I would have to go back and revisit, you know, the characteristics. Do you ever mm -hmm. do you ever work with um, or practice the um, 
the practice called ABA? I don't. I don't, but um, Dr. Starr has worked a lot on behavior. I'm not an ABA person, though, but I will say that I do, um, I teach within the ABA program um, at several different cohorts and classes within that program, specifically um, focusing on how to um, how to work within the school system for ABA professionals because I we both both of us work within the schools um, pretty regularly and so it's important with how many students are in need of ABA services um, for them to understand the IEP process and for them to understand the roles that different professionals play within the school setting. So, you know, in my opinion, that gives them kind of a leg up um, from psychotherapists because a lot of them don't know the school setting, the school system. So I'm glad that the programs within, you know, that I've been asked to teach um, for ABA professionals are emphasizing the need to come into the schools and provide those services to those students. Yes, because many of the very, very young children that are even that I've seen in the last month, one of their big problems is that they not were not paying attention and they were not following their parents' directions and <clears throat> their reactions were to cry or to run away. <laughs> and so those parents oh, need a yeah. lot of support to provide mm -hmm. those kids with a more regular reinforcement. Otherwise, if they don't pay attention, they don't concentrate, they will not listen. And if you don't listen well, you will not be able to learn language. Well, I think each profession kind of calls it different things. Um, for, you know, where I've been trained, it's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And actually, that's something that we were discussing, my business partner mom and I, um, because it is helpful, we feel, for everybody to have those same principles of how to create structure for parents, um, how to create reward systems how to give, you know, consequences can be good and bad. So it's not just because you get a consequence doesn't mean it's negative. It certainly can be positive. So we feel that it's important for all professionals underneath the umbrella who work with children, whether it's ABA therapists, um, marriage and family therapists, um, LCSWs, uh, psychologists, educational psychologists, speech and language therapists, um, mm -hmm. occupational therapists, physical therapists to understand at the very least uh, some of these principles that, you know, in our profession we call them cognitive behavioral therapy where we're helping to give um, students those guidelines so that they can know what's expected of them and so that, the, you know, the parents can practice setting limits and, and um, because that's, that's commonly uh, what a lot of parents and kids are struggling with, and a lot of times that then becomes a presenting issue that they contact us for help with here. What are your thoughts on um, working with and trying to improve eye contact? What was the question? Eye contact. Eye contact is very important, but 
to begin with, you have to have reciprocity. There are kids who, where you have to start by um, <clears throat> giving them something and ask and kind of expecting them to give it back to you. Reciprocity is very important in order for communication to take place. And eye contact will be as well. So it depends on the child, but I would start by rather than saying looking at me, just having the child return something to you and then slowly being able to face you. Okay, and then also if I could put in my two cents, also that's a good idea. And also I believe that quite largely um, a lack of eye contact can also be related to one's perception of themselves and their self-esteem. And um, a lot of times if they're not sure or they're feeling shy or they feel anxious about something or they've never been asked to do something before and it's their first time, a lot of times when we feel uncomfortable, we don't. Um, it's too much. It's a lot of pressure to look someone in the eye. And so working with them on building trust with them and also modeling with them um, what's, a, what's expected because obviously we want to differentiate between staring someone in the face and maintaining appropriate eye contact because and also taking in those cultural factors because yeah, in people's say. cultures, a lot of times that may not be appropriate, especially when they're um, talking to adults to look at them in the eye. They've been trained to like look at the floor, you know, et cetera. So we could inadvertently miscommunicate, misunderstand their communication. But I think it also has to do with establishing a good trust with the person, um, modeling what is expected of them, um, praising them when they do the right thing, um, when they are able to maintain appropriate eye contact, and then helping them to um, have that trust so that they feel comfortable in what they're doing. So th those are things that I would highlight. Yeah. Excellent. Um, do you ever use and take advantage of positive reinforcement? Yes. <laughs> Quite often we do. Um, you know, for example, my mom and I have been teaming up a lot of times because you like she was just telling me today, right? There was a kid yeah. who was doing what she was talking about where, you know, especially with this virtual stuff going on, um, he was unable to sustain attention for the computer. And so she worked with the mom and um, was just telling me and consulting me about what they ended up doing. Mm -hmm. And so what they ended up doing was, um, you know, we go sometimes to the craft store and we'll buy these 99 cent things like, you know, silly putty or bouncy balls or, um, you know, dinosaur, like these, the boys especially, but, you know, all kids love foam, um, spongy things, you know, that he was attracted to dinosaurs specifically. That was his um, reinforcement that he really liked. So, you know, we said, okay, um, if you follow these directives and you're able to sit down for the lesson and pay attention, then we'll go ahead and nail you these <laughs> dinosaur sponges. And so apparently he was willing to work for these dinosaur sponges. Um, they're really cool, right, for every, you know, if you're a kid at heart or you're a kid, because mm -hmm. they grow in water. So there's like these little pills and they look like little pills, and then you put them in water, capsules, uh, and you put them in water, they expand to dinosaurs, and kids are fascinated by it. So, um, And then, 
at, you told me that he was willing to, all of a sudden mom said he was willing to sit and pay attention like magic. So um, <laughs> oftentimes we are using little simplistic rewards like that can really go a long way. Yeah, and unfortunately, we have a tendency as human beings on focusing on the what the kid did wrong or incorrectly rather than uh, focus very importantly on what the child did. And having been a parent, I, I know that uh, myself. So I am trying to help the parents I work with to look at what the child did fine. Oh, right, because then that can then um, tie in with um, the idea of their self-esteem being more intact and building that up because we all want to feel like we did something right. You know, we don't want to be <laughs> focused on what we didn't do or, you know, sometimes that's fine in giving corrective action, but if constantly we're told what we're doing wrong, then that kind of reinforces that maybe we're not good enough and those kind of, you know, thought processes start to happen where it's like, well, fine, then I don't like school then because I can never do anything right, you know, I'm always getting bad grades or the teacher's always calling on me <laughs> or whatever it is. So a lot of times it's about pointing out what they are doing right. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I, could, I would totally agree with you. What, what are the three things that you wish you knew now compared to when you first started out? In our practice or in... Um, in our profession, or both? Both. Okay. Um, I learned a lot of practical things, and that's great. You know, throughout my work experience, I felt that um, I didn't give myself a lot of credit for knowing that. Um, for example, I, I really, um, I try to help people, for example, they come to me and they have issues with knowing what they should do in their life. So they're unsure of what they should do. And, you know, whether that's career or the rest of their life, they don't have many aspirations or they have too many aspirations and they're not quite sure. And so I've, you know, taken courses in, um, you know, I took a course in career counseling. I have experience with that. But more importantly, um, it's about helping people, you know, my dissertation was on helping people to know what their passion passion is and like really helping them to tie that in with what they want to do. And so um, that's kind of stuff that I had to figure out on my own. <laughs> so I try to really, when I teach people or when I help people through counseling or even as students, I try to emphasize the real world application of things because I feel like you can pick up a book at any point, but you can't listen to someone's experience. You can't do something hands-on. Um, you have to plan for that. And so I am glad that I was able to, to do those things, but I had to learn on my own. For example, how to have a practice. Um, you know, I had to learn on my own how to work experience, like how to facilitate, you know, what goes into school IEP meetings and, you know, all of those things that I do now. Um, I basically learned as I went, and I've been at the schools now almost a decade, so I know what I'm doing, but I wish I would have gotten more experience rather than having to learn as I go. Um, 
but that's how we learn. So I flip it around and try to make it into a positive. And yeah, I just try to give those real world experiences to my students because I didn't get a lot of those. Um, it was a lot of reading and reading is great, but then like, what are you going to do with that, right? Like, how are you going to help people to transform that knowledge into something they can actually take and do? So that's what we are trying to do, like, together, is to fill gaps and voids where perhaps there may not be a lot of um, inquiry or investigation or knowledge right now. Um, so I feel like as a depth psychologist, that's something they told us from the beginning is that we're not only looking at what's there, but also what isn't there, and what isn't being said, and what isn't being taught. How about you? Well, I have um, practiced our profession in different settings. Often, uh, most, uh, you know, most of the time, uh, teaching at the college and the graduate level, uh, being very oriented towards being very precise in what I say, don't open my mouth and say something without some backing of it. Teaching my students to be responsible for what they're going to say and write. And so private practice in this sense, as I have been trying to do it for the past five years, was something very new to me. And I am getting used to being more confident in myself because it's a different story to talk about it. I did have experience because I always did work with kids, but not in this context. And it's not part of your training and at the university on how no, to open a business. how to open a business. So with Maxine... Um, many universities don't have it. Maybe some do, but I haven't seen that many. With Maxine, we have uh, paved the way. And I'm still learning how to be more confident in myself. And not that I know everything, but I've accomplished a lot in my <laughs> life. I've had rewards. Awards, uh, awards from professional from, organizations. Yeah, and people respect me in the field, but I feel that I'm learning constantly, and that's the joy of life, that I am learning something new every day. And I do strongly believe that uh, life is a way to learn things. Otherwise, it gets to be very boring. So that's what I'm learning, to be more confident and to learn yeah. that it's okay not to know absolutely everything. And every day is different. So that's what yes. is really nice about being in private practice is that you never quite you know what your day is going to look like, and we definitely thrive on that. We like doing that. The variety. Good question. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what would you say is your dominant learning styles? Um, in other words, do you, do you learn best by visual? Are you a visual learner, a auditory learner, a reading and writing learner or a kinesthetic learner? Um, I would say I am a visual learner. I um, like looking, you know, and um, 
that's kind of how that's how I got to graduate school is through a lot of different highlighting <laughs> of stuff. And I would remember where on the page I highlighted something. Um, in fact, one of my um, graduate school professors called me, you know, Miss DSM because I could tell you what the code was for each, you know, and I can't anymore because we're at DSM five and. I don't really, you know, I don't know a lot of insurance, but I still have to keep above it. I can no longer say more or less what the code is, but I used to. So by looking at stuff, I can um, definitely memorize it and memorialize it in my mind. And so one of the things that I do that a lot of clinicians I don't think do, and that's fine, but my strength is I'm able to meet with somebody in a room. I do not take notes. I'm just attending to what they're talking to me about. And then I can retain that. So I guess it's a little auditory too, but I remember it in terms of like as if it was a picture or a movie. So I think visually and, and auditorily, I can be there with somebody and retain that information, um, you know, and still give my all to them in that moment. The That's style of learning depends very much on how you're being taught. I am already a lady who is, um, you know, advanced in age, so Not I've really. gone. You're young at heart. You're a freaking yeah. kid. <laughs> I am. My brain is very young. My body is older. But I've gone through many types of teaching. So I think the type of teaching that you go through will mold the way in which you learn. And I have investigated this idea of are you a visual, are you auditory, are you kinesthetic? It all depends on what exactly you're working on. I would say that I am a holistic learner. I have to read it. I have to write about it. I have to hear about it. I have to experience it and make that association in my brain in order to retain it. It depends also whether you're trying to learn something that you will need to retain forever, or if it's something that you just in the old days retained for an exam. And also, um, it does, we, I do talk a lot about embodiment and, you know, where something sits in your body. And so having that understanding, because a lot of people, I think, um, may not know or be aware of how um, intertwined the brain and the body are in terms of how the body might um, you know, react to something and then that inadvertently creates a memory or a recollection of an event because of how you perceive it in your body. So I help people to notice that and, um, you know, have a hard time with like not, my face gives it away. So <laughs> if I have a facial expression, which right now is half there because of a mask, but um, if I have a certain facial expression, you'll know what I'm thinking because it's really hard for me to have a poker face. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, do you ever use iPads as, as communication devices for your clients that are nonverbal? Or, or do, you, do you even have any clients that are nonverbal? Um, no, I, I I don't. I'm not an expert in my field, which is called uh, alternative communication. Uh, there is a, is that what you're referring to, which the acronym is AAC, augmentative alternative communication. Well, you use apps 
I do. I do apps for uh, like drill, do. drill for because you have to do a little bit of drill when you don't pronounce it sound very correctly. So yes, I do application for that, and for some kids who are having a very hard time communicating, I have used. Um, like cards of different sorts. Yeah, you play memory on there. Yes. And then, you know, to even get the talking, sometimes we'll do, like, you can do the solo player on Words with Friends, Scrabble, or any of the other art games on there, like drawing. Um, And that can really give you a a a picture of um, what they're thinking and feeling and a different way to communicate rather than verbally. A lot of disability organizations we are having are recently using iPads for communicating. Um, yeah, they're they're using um, pictures on iPads where the, the the clients can can physically make contact with the pictures and. The, the iPad will, will speak for them. Um, exactly, yeah. Uh, and there are different types of, that's not my area of real specialty, but I actually, tomorrow I'm working with a boy that has very, very limited expressive language and people don't understand why. And I think he has not been given a, I believe that a child he like that. He would benefit from that. Yeah. He should be seen by, uh, not that I want him to be diagnosed with something, but it will help us to know, you know, if there is something neurological because he is not speaking at all. Uh, So there is definitely something that is not connecting very well. And I don't believe that he has been giving, you know, the the right, uh, I cannot say that because if I, don't, don't take this please, but... (laughs) If I suggest a developmental, uh, uh, he's only about five years old. If I suggest a thorough assessment from a specialist, uh, the school district might be liable. Yeah, we can't recommend it, but, uh, you know. If it were my child, I would have taken this child already. The point is that iPads can definitely be a helpful communication device to encourage that kind of communication that, may not be elicited through verbal. It depends also on the level of the child's, again, physical and intellectual ability. But these are all good tools to have at our disposal should we need to refer to another And that's, again, sign sign language. I I know three other spoken languages, but no sign language. And sign language is another way to communicate. So, well, we uh, have written a an article on, you know, there's other parts to that in terms of um, a lot of times one may be uh, going through or uh, having a diagnosis of selective mutism where in certain situations they feel so anxious that they will not talk. And so a lot of times that can be confused and people think that, you know, the child needs that extra help in that area, but in fact, it's more, could be more anxiety related, um, and mm-hmm. we've worked on a few cases like that, where the child wasn't talking at school, so of course the parent and the teacher are 
beside themselves. And then all of a sudden, you know, at home, the child is like a different person. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you have to kind of see what really is causing, what's the function, what, what's the cause behind why the child isn't communicating and what they might need. Therefore, the great need to look at the child in different contexts. Because at home, there might be one way, and at school, there might be a different way. And out with the friends. And out with friends, it's a different way. So if you really want to be thorough, you need to look at different contexts. Mm -hmm. Just having a child come into my office doesn't tell me the entire story. That's why it takes me longer than other people. I need to have the parent input. I need to ask permission if I can go and see the child maybe in their school or while well, they play Zoom or, something. or something different because you cannot, you are going to see me speaking with you in one aspect, but if you see me in a social situation, it'll be different or while I'm working with a kid, it's different. You are, uh, you change. You are, you have different roles as a person. Same thing with a child. They behave differently in different contexts. Yep. Um, what kind of insurances do you take? If, oh, if anyone. Oh, sure. Um, so actually, we're considered an out-of-network provider for most insurance plans. Um, depending on what subsidiary, because there's different ones for like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Aetna, you know, all those things. So sometimes we've been able to negotiate a single payer agreement, but we are considered an out of network provider for most insurance plans. We take um, flexible spending accounts, we take healthcare savings accounts, we take cash, card, uh, check. And then we also offer a sliding scale depending on your unique situation. And it's a um, case-by-case basis. And we'll talk with you because our mission here is that we want to help people. And we know from both experience and hearing from other people how frustrating it can be to deal with the insurance just because they might be telling you, oh, yeah, we're only going to cover you after you meet your deductible, or we don't take that condition, or you aged out of the regional center, or, you know, it's going to be two months before we can help you. And so for that reason, um, you know, we created this business model, which is more of a boutique style practice. We are by appointment only. We are here. um, Typically, uh, it depends on the week, but some Saturdays and Monday through Friday, uh, again, depending on the particular week. Uh, so we're able to accommodate people both um, through virtual sessions right now and also in office. But we are, of course, taking those precautions, staggering people. So that's why we are by appointment only. Um, and we're, we're willing and able to help. We want to help. So that's Absolutely. why we, we are here to kind of cover those gaps that might exist through people's frustrations with their own insurance or they want to do something separately from their insurance and um, something that's just for them. So, And it's really very focused on what, not that other places don't do it, but we're really 
focusing on the specific needs of our clients. And that way, you know, it's not like we have to travel outside of our office to get additional specialty or expertise. Of course, you know, it's case by case basis, but most of the time people are half more than happy to have us consult on cases together. And so we can address things like, oh, my child's out of control. I don't know what to do with Johnny. He's climbing up the walls. You know, he doesn't listen. Um, you know, he doesn't talk that much or whatever the case may be. So they're more than happy to have both of us together. So we can offer that as well for both of us to be either consulting about a case or together working side by side, um, depending on what, you know, again, their unique needs are. Exactly. Um, I guess my final question to you is, do you have any final words of advice and wisdom you want to share? <laughs> you? Yeah, I feel like one person cannot do it all. It takes the parents, the family, the practitioner, colleagues, to work with one individual, just like it takes a whole village to raise a child. So I well, feel, we're part of that village, for sure. And I feel very lucky that I can work with uh, somebody who is as brilliant <laughs> and well-educated as my own daughter. I never in the world... <laughs> would have thought this because I have to say an anecdote. This is a wonderful woman who at the age of two years old had only five words and she was driving me crazy. But she did one thing. She was observing. And that's why comprehension precedes expression. When I have parents telling me I want my child to talk, I have to say they will talk, but first they have to hear and listen, listen and observe. And be patient. Yeah. So. <laughs> For sure. And I would say, um, you know, with everything going on, because we have to consider, you know, what's going on in the society today, you know, there's always a double-edged sword to it. On one hand, it, it does, it is um, impacting whether you think you're thinking about racial tension or COVID or, you know, disruption to work or whatever it is, economy, et cetera, it presents, um, you know, challenges as well as opportunities. And so um, we've adapted with the times. And um, in one, on, one, on one positive note, um, it seems that the trend is now for people to know, like, when is enough enough? And I need to take care of myself. I need to reach out for help. I need to help, you know, I'm not maybe you know, um, on the brink of an emergency, but certainly I need to start thinking about how to take care of myself because I am feeling a certain way. I am feeling stressed. And so I think both with um, social emotional learning being pushed in the schools as well as parents kind of being in the situation they never thought they would be in and just society as a whole kind of saying, like, you need to take care of yourself because life isn't guaranteed. Tomorrow isn't guaranteed. So we need to do something now. And so I think people are starting to realize that that is important, that they take care of themselves. And I think that that's um, why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing. Excellent. Um, do you have any questions you, you would like to ask me? 
I, 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 I personally would like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Yes, thank you. Because we, we love what we do. And I wanted to ask you, um, why did you, what drove you into doing podcasting? I wanted a platform and forum to, first of all, express myself in such a way that I could choose and decide my own hours. I I also wanted to do something that is out of the norm. Uh, currently, I'm in the process of starting my own nonprofit organization. Yay! Um, Congratulations! Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of franchising my nonprofit, um, so that I can reach more people. Um, That's marvelous. We really I, I, feel, I feel like that the main obstacles that nonprofits are facing is finding donors. Um, but if you franchise your nonprofit, then you no longer have to worry about that. Um, would Yeah, and, and I think um, having a podcast is a great way to get the word out too, you know? Then you have a platform yeah. to stand on and then more people get to know what you're doing. And so we should say, you know, you we should like stay connected. Contact. Absolutely. Um, um, I I hope we can stay stay in touch in, 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 in contact. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Thank you again for Thank having you. us. Thank you so much. Likewise. Have a good day. Merci. You Merci in French. Gracias. Gracias. And in Polish, it's Jing-kui. Jing-kui. No, Jing-kui. Jing-kui. <laughs> yes. Thank you.